guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind opening up to Exodus chapter 3. So Exodus chapter 3 is the passage I'll be reading from in just a little bit here. And uh, as you guys are turning there to kind of familiarize you a little bit with what it was I was doing in the SEAL teams, I think I left you guys with a cliffhanger the last time I was here, how my team got set up on this ambush and just left you hanging on how that all turned out. Well, obviously, I stand alive before you here on the platform uh, this morning, so it did turn out the right way. But for those of you that weren't here to bring the rest of you up to speed, uh, my team was deployed to Iraq and were given the task over there of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with Iraq special forces. And so one of our goals with these guys, they're called the ISOF, Iraqi Special Operations Forces, is to teach them, train them how to fight their own fights. Best way to do that is not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. When we were running out of time and it looked like we just had enough time to maybe fit in one more operation, we decided we're going to make this final operation a sort of graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. And so they start from scratch, hitting the streets. They find out some intel about this man that's a policeman by day, wears that uniform, but back home at night, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so they come up with the plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab the guy, extract, and it all checks out, looks pretty good. And then they had that odd request. They said, hey, for this final operation, would you be willing to maybe take off your American colored uniforms, and we got a pile of ice off uniforms for you guys to put on. Like, what's the logic behind that? Well, they felt they were getting shot at more than we were. They felt they were convinced that it's the color of your uniform. So they thought if we wore their uniforms, we're like, all right, you want us to put on your uniforms? in hopes that we get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine, it's not about the uniforms. And so we're loading up. I'm in that section called the tour. I'm behind the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you that don't know, uh, let's just say it's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I got my night vision goggles on. We're rolling out, going after this guy. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is it. This is the final operation. Just a matter of days from now, I'm gonna be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, California, surfing in the ocean. And as I'm thinking that up and we're rolling out, little do we know, we're actually being set up the entire time to get thrown the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we find ourselves set up on an ambush and now we're pulling up and engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And over the radio, as fire gets opened up, it's just a tick, 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 troops in contact. And my assault leader's like, all right, boys, we're getting out of your life, but I need you to push left. So push left, tactically speaking, meant that we're not going to hightail it out of there. He wants us to flank him from the left. And we just start doing what we do best in the teams. You know, the odds are really against you in an ambush. It's actually how my mentor that you just saw a little bit about, him and everyone that he was with in his vehicle, they all got wiped out. You've lost that element of surprise. Uh, but really against all the odds on this night, we ended up shooting, moving, communicating, driving back those that wanted to not fight anymore and those that wanted to stick around and fight. We eliminated them. We got in there, we captured the guy that we're going after, wounded and alive. And I'll say this is one of the big differences between us and them, if you will, over there, is that when they're no longer a lethal threat, we preserve life wherever possible. I was actually given the responsibility of carrying this guy by hand into our own hospital. And it's just a, such a bizarre thing to be carrying these guys, thinking you were just trying to kill me and my buddies, and now here we are saving your life. And I'll tell you, there was a little bit of a come to Jesus as I was in the teams. I got saved while I was on SEAL Team 1. I remember looking down at this guy and thinking, you're so lucky I became a Christian, because I don't know how I would have handled this moment right here. 
Uh, but we all came back home alive on that one. One guy got shot in the butt, and uh, he, was, he was laughing about it on the way home. Uh, that's the upside, but I think we need to remember it doesn't always work out that way. You know, that our freedoms are not free, and when you think about it, what are they paid for in? Well, they're paid for in the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. That's true of our earthly freedom, and there's also spiritual truth to that when you think about our eternal freedom paid for in the blood, not of soldiers, but the Savior at the cross. And so I think it's probably pretty safe to say everyone in this room is proud, proud to be an American, And when you think about it, why? Like, what's so great about being an American? There's certain things that come up in that list. You know, the pursuit of happiness, I think at the very top is freedom. Freedom would be number one, and then somewhere below that would be like In-N-Out Burger, Chick-fil-A, you know, these are good things about it too. Uh, But freedom. And it's worth reflecting on for a moment, what's so great about freedom? And the answer that comes to mind is, I guess, the realization that it's not just built into life. It's easy to take for granted for those of us that were kind of brought up in the early 2000s, a thing like 9-11 is a real wake-up call that people want to take away these freedoms that we enjoy. This isn't just some built-into-life default position. And so freedom, not being free, it almost seems like there's always some kind of evil lurking around that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And Mark Twain, he says, you know, history doesn't always repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And you certainly see that rhyme reverberating throughout history. The very founding of our nation, there were those that were living freely. And then you have a tyrannical king, King George III, that says, you know what? They got it too good over there. And he starts trying to put some pressure on the folks here. Taxation without representation, sending troops over, everything coming to a head at the Boston Massacre. And finally, there are these patriots that stand in the gap and say, you know what? Give me liberty or give me death. We're not going to stand for this anymore. And that freedom did come through blood, sweat, tears, hard work, and determination. It certainly wasn't free, and it was penned into history as what? A declaration of independence. The independence that they're declaring is we are no longer going to be brought under this captivity, this rule, this bondage of a tyrannical ruler. Here's the rhyme to that, is that you see that in Exodus as well. Weren't the children of Israel under the rule of a tyrannical ruler that wanted to bring people into bondage, captivity, and slavery, and God used his patriot, as it were, Moses, to give what? A declaration of independence. It was a weaponized message. He says, let my people go. They're not going to be under this captivity anymore. And here's the real big takeaway I want to challenge you all with this morning, and I hope to bring all these threads together, is that we are living in a time where there is a tyrannical ruler, the God of this age. It's spiritual battle. And there are people that are in bondage, captivity, and slavery to what? To sin. And God calls his patriots. And who are his patriots? Every card-carrying Christian to do what? To deliver a message, a declaration of independence, a let my people go message, which is what? It's the gospel message. It sets captive people free. And so that's sort of the 30,000 foot view of what I want to be going over uh, this morning. And remember, we're in Exodus chapter three and to bring everyone up to speed in terms of what's going on in Exodus at this point. Well, in Exodus, we find ourselves in the land of Egypt. And so obviously this is the land of the Egyptians. But they didn't live there all by themselves, did they? They coexisted. And some of the people they coexisted with were the children of God. And everything was going great for a while. Why? Well, because of one of Israel's own, Joseph. You remember the story, ultimate rags to riches story? This kid knows firsthand what it's like to be brought up under domestic abuse. 
His own brothers wanted to kill him. Then they realized, you know, we can sell him. And so now he gets thrown into human trafficking, wrongfully gets thrown into prison for something he did not do. But all the while, he remained steadfast, faithful to the Lord. He wasn't shaking his fist up at the sky. And God came through. He blessed him. And he went from being where? From prison to prince. Literally became second in command over all of Egypt. Second in command next to only the very Pharaoh himself. And so everything was going great for the children of Israel for a while because they're riding along on Joseph's coattails. He had favor. But like so many good things in life, this one wasn't going to last forever. Eventually, Joseph died. And then we're informed in Exodus 1.8 that the king that knew Joseph, he died, and a new king rises to power, and it says that he knew Joseph not. And this new king is looking at the children of Israel and seeing how they're just flourishing in his land. And he's like, no, not on my watch. And so they lose their charitable king for now a genocidal king. He decides to try and really turn up the temperature on them by doing what? Taking away straw. You know, us Californians were not the first ones to get straw taken away out of the restaurants, right? They, they had the straw taken away. They couldn't make brick and mortar anymore, right? So obviously this guy did not walk in his predecessor's footsteps. In fact, they said he walked like an Egyptian. All right, dad jokes, I'm done. <laughs> and so the more he cranked up the heat on the children of Israel, the more that they were blessed and they were flourished, and that's when he went full-on genocidal. He decided he's going to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. He wants them exposed to the elements, let them die. Well, one would come to be born that we know as Moses. And so interestingly, it's not his birth mother that gave him his, this name, Moses. It actually came from the Egyptian princess because Mama Bear, she's like, I'm not killing my boy. She's coming up with crafty plans on you know, how I'm gonna you know, kind of preserve him, hide him away, but eventually this thing is gonna be exposed. And so she knew what to do. She noticed how the Pharaoh's princess would often go down to the Nile River to wash herself. So she thought to herself, if I just set up my baby boy in a basket amongst those Nile reads, perhaps your heartstrings will be tugged, and she'll take him in, she'll do something, and sure enough, that's what happened. And so she was the one that gave Moses his name. It came from the Egyptians, and the name has meaning. It has significance. It means to be drawn out of. So just as he was drawn out of that water, God would draw the children of Israel through the Red Sea, out of the water, out of the hands of the Egyptians. She's drawing him out of these muddy Nile reeds, and then what happens with him? He's becoming royalty. You know, now he's living the life of prestige. He's in the king's palace, eating at the king's table. Everything's going great for Moses, but all the while, the children of Israel, they're still suffering. And so he decides one day that he wants to step in. He has a heart towards his own people. In fact, the New Testament informs us. I think it's Acts chapter 7. It talks about how he thought that his people would understand that God was going to use him to deliver them from the hands of the Egyptians, and so he sees an Egyptian beating on one of his own countrymen. He gets patriotic. He steps in, lays hands on the guy, takes things too far, winds up killing the guy. And then like so many of us, you know, whenever we make a mistake, it's kind of hard to fess up to it right away. Sometimes you might want to try and cover it up. Well, this guy, he covered it up. He covered the guy in the desert. He buried him. It probably didn't take much more than a soft wind to expose what he had done. Another day goes by. He sees a couple of his own countrymen. They're in a dispute with one another. He wants to play mediator. So he's trying to get in the middle of the two of them, and they're looking at him, and they say, who do you think you are? He goes, I'm Batman. <laughs> no, <laughs> he didn't do that. But they say, who do you think you are? Who made you judge and prince over us? What, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? Now, could you imagine 
just the look, the feeling on Moses' face, the thought, the sense of like betrayal. He really put his neck out there on the line. He risked it all, his status, his identity to try and get in there and do something. And these guys are basically giving him one of these. We've heard this before. Well, I didn't ask you to do that for me. It just cuts to the heart. And so he realizes the king's gonna find out. He's gonna put a hit out on me. And sure enough, that's what happened. And so now Moses is on the run. He's a fugitive. And we catch up with him 40 years later, way out in the back of the desert. And that's where we're gonna read Exodus chapter three, verse one. I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So there he is, way out there in the back of the desert. Now, could you imagine the sense of what a wasted life? Why did I have to go and do a thing like that? Looking back in the rearview mirror of time, thinking about how good things used to be, but now look at where I'm at. I am way out here in the back of the desert. And many of you might find yourself in that very place this morning, a room this size by the law of averages, highly likely. You look back in the rearview mirror of time and thinking about how good things used to be in our nation. The good old days, right? Maybe the family was a little bit more of a, a family dynamic, but everyone's kind of gone their separate ways. Or even in the workplace, you've just kind of fallen on this hard, dry season. And you think, that's it. And you look back thinking, all the good days are in the rearview mirror. And all I'm doing now is basically doing what Moses is doing, just the most mundane, repetitious, herding some sheep, following them around, just kind of rolling with the punches, going with the motions. Let me suggest to you that maybe being way out in the back of the desert is where we need to be individually and collectively before God can ultimately take us to where he wants us to be and use us the way he wants us to, he, he wants to. There's biblical precedent for that. Look, we know how this works out for Moses, this sort of desert experience. He's gonna get the call. He's gonna have the honor of saying, let my people go. Then he's gonna guide them through the wilderness and even the children of Israel. What was it before they got to go over that Jordan River into the land of milk and honey? It was a wilderness desert experience. And how often they were looking back thinking they had it better in Egypt. They did not know what was about to come around the corner. God uses people this way. You think of the prophets like Elijah or John the Baptist. He was known as what? A man of the wilderness before what? He had the incredible honor of making straight the way of the Lord, ushering in the Messiah King, or even Jesus himself. Sometimes you might think, I have found myself here because of some type of consequence. This is some type of, of discipline I'm experiencing. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. You know, Jesus was holy, perfect, and blameless without sin, and yet he had his wilderness experience. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before what? That was all before his preaching ministry began. And so maybe being out in the back of the desert in a wilderness place is exactly where we need to be before God can prepare you and take you to where he wants you to be. There's an anonymous poem that I think captures this brilliantly. It's anonymous. And it, it kind of hits on how God works, you know, in the life of the believer and how you got to go through this sort of forging process. There's this rite of passage. There's this hammer and chisel that's out and there's this chipping away and it hurts sometimes. But we need to remember that 
God is up to something. We don't necessarily know what he's up to, but we need to trust him the same way that Joseph trusted him in the midst of all of his fiery trials he went through. So the poem goes like this. It says that when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends, but he never breaks when it's man's good that he undertakes. And now he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. So again, we might not know what God is up to. We might be thinking as that hammer and chisel is out, he's chipping away and whole chunks are coming off and we wanna cry out and go, why, God? We need to remember that he's trying his splendor out. He knows what he is about. He's the master sculptor. He has an image in mind. We read on Exodus chapter three, next verse, verse two. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses says, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Focus in verse four. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him. That's worth reading again. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and says, Moses, Moses. Interesting. When the Lord saw, that's when he turned aside and looked. And that's when God called him. Sometimes the greater the need, the greater the result. You know, highly likely that if, if Moses was living that life of prestige, you know, eating from, you know, the king's table, silver spoon, it's kind of hard for God to get people's attention when everything is just going so great in life. C.S. Lewis, he says, you know, God's voice is like a whisper to us. In times of pleasure, it's like a whisper to us. You can barely hear it, but pain and suffering operate sometimes as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf ear. For whatever reason, sometimes it takes our back up against the wall for God to really get our attention. And so now Moses, he, God has his attention. The Lord is observing. Oh, now I got your attention out here, Moses, out in the back of the desert. And so this is when God's gonna speak to him now. Now that I got your attention, this is when God speaks. A little jump to verse nine. God speaking to Moses goes like this. God says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so Moses essentially is getting the call right now that he always wanted. God is like, hey, Moses, remember that thing that you wanted to do? Well, let me tell you, you went about it the wrong time, you went about it the wrong way. But Moses, we're gonna make Israel great again. You're gonna be my guy. <laughs> what was Moses' response? Is he super excited that he has the opportunity to deliver a weaponized message, a declaration of independence? Not so much. Moses' response, verse 11, but Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You have to remember that at this stage of his life, he's spent 40 years on the run as a fugitive. And what really hit me is this whole, who am I questioning his whole identity? Because what was the last question 
that he was asked by his own countrymen 40 years prior, who do you think you are? And so this poison that was just put into his brain, he's still mulling it over, thinking he's just not the right guy for the job. I'm a nobody, who am I? It's this sort of defeated attitude, this victim mentality of a victim of the circumstances. And we obviously know that it's very prevalent to this day. In the SEAL teams, the way that we put it is it's that we are the common men with uncommon desire to succeed. A lot of people in life, they feel like they are the victim of their circumstances. This is just the deck of cards they've been dealt. They're playing their hand. This is how the chips fell, and they're just, they're just doing their, their thing. Well, that couldn't be any further from the truth, and a great example of that would be SEAL training. You know, we have this idea, this concept in our head of like what success looks like. And there's certain people that are just cut from another piece of cloth or born and bred with that DNA that's something special that others don't have. And you hear that about SEALs sometimes. Those guys, man, they just got that thing that they're just, you either got it or you don't. It can't be taught. That couldn't be further from the truth. Good example would be the first day of training, 173 guys in my class all saying the same thing with our mouth. Oh, yeah, we'll die before we quit. Remember, instructor coming into the room saying, how many of you will die before you quit? You know, he's challenging us. And so we're saying, oh, yeah, that's our yes. And he goes, great, this is what I want you to do. Why don't you take a mental picture of the people on your left and right, in front of you and behind you? I was a class clown at the time, so I'm taking like real mental pictures. I'm like, chicken, chicken, chicken. <laughs> and he goes, chances are, if you're still standing here for graduation day, that means each of these guys you just took a mental picture of, they didn't make it. So do you really think you're the one? And I remember looking around the room thinking to myself, wow, where are these quitters going to come from? You know, like, I know it's not going to be me, but at the same time, these guys say the same thing, and they say it in the same way, in a very believable way. In fact, we've already gone through some pre-SEAL training official together. It's called INDOC, where we have been beat down. We have been hurt under the hands of these instructors, and nobody has quit yet. And so then the astonishing thing was like, how far down into the abyss do we have to go before some of these guys begin to fall off? And so realizing now the majority of the room has got to go, I got to pick off some guys in my head that I think will quit. Like, where's that low-hanging fruit? And I'm scanning, and I can't pick anybody out. I'm truly struggling. And then my eyes fall on this guy named Barth, and I'm thinking, as I look at Barth, he's not one of the guys that's going to quit. He captured my attention in such a way to where I thought there's one of the guys who will definitely be there for graduation day. Why? Because Barth was in a league of his own. He was that guy that was born and bred to be a Navy SEAL, cut from another piece of cloth, blessed with that DNA to where there's no question over who's getting first place. We all know it's going to be Barth. We're all competing for like, okay, who's grabbing second? And so that guy, he'll be there. And I'm looking around thinking, ah, I'm not supposed to find the people that are going to make it. Like, find the quitters. I can't find anyone. But then how could I forget about this one other guy? Alex Gagne. Alex Gagne, complete antithesis of Bart. This guy's the ugly duckling of the class. He's literally the kid that rolled off the couch one day, unplugged the electronics, and just decided he wanted to become a Navy SEAL. Like, <laughs> always in the very back on everything we ever did. It's called the Goon Squad. He got a lot of extra special unwanted attention from the instructor. So I'm thinking, not only will that guy quit, he will be the first guy to quit. He's the locker room talk. Everyone knows he's going to quit. The irony of it all, by the time we get to the most difficult part of SEAL training called Hell Week, where they keep you up for five and a half days, you get four hours of sleep. That's it. Not per night. That's it. Four hours, next five and a half days. You run over 200 miles. You're getting surf tortured. So much can be said. Well, who's still there? Alex Gagne. Who's amongst the first to quit? This guy, Barth. Who made it all the way through the pipeline and became a SEAL? 
that locker room talk, Alex, the guy that everyone thought would be the first to quit, ultimately becomes a seal. What does that demonstrate? That demonstrates the truth of this principle of being a common man, or you could say common woman with uncommon desire to succeed. The key stuff here isn't the hardware, it's the software, it's the heart, the desire, the mindset. This is a principle that is proven true in SEAL training, but this is a principle that is rooted in biblical foundations as well. Remember in 1 Samuel 16, in comparison to Saul, the people's choice, the one that was head and shoulders above all the rest, he had the look. Everyone looked at Saul as, you're the type that ought to be king. And now they're looking for a new king. And so the prophet goes to the house of Jesse. He's going through all of his sons. It's not this one. It's not that one. It's not this one. Well, I got David out there, but he's like the last to ever get picked on the kickball team. You don't want that one. He's the locker room talk. Nope, that's God's anointed. What do we know about David? He had a heart after God's own heart. God's word, 1 Samuel 16 says, I do not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And this man that had a heart after God's own heart, this little runt of the litter, what did God do with him? He used him to take on the giant, Goliath, and he chopped his head off. And so this is a biblical truth. Really what it comes down to Moses is, do you still have that heart? Do you still have that desire? Because remember, in Acts chapter 7, he thought his people would understand that God was going to use him to deliver them from the Egyptians. And so it's all over the scriptures. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro, it says, throughout the whole earth to do what? Show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards them. And so maybe you feel like you didn't get dealt a good deck of cards in life. Well, guess what? That actually puts you in pretty good standing because it's actually quite the opposite. Rarely do we ever see someone that was really extraordinary before they had their encounter with God in the scriptures where they get used by God, right? Typically, it's kind of the opposite way around. It, you know, it's kind of this, the Samson effect, right? Like Samson started off strong. He got his buzz cut, didn't go so well, you know, after that. <laughs> He had an okay landing, though, I'd say, at the end, which is nice. All right, and so reading on, Moses says, who am I? And God is finally going to speak up to him, and he's going to tell him this is what it's really all about, Moses. Wrong question, not who am I, who is my God? And so Moses is asking, who am I? God says to him, verse 12, so he, God, says, I will certainly be with you. That's where the power and the authority is. I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses says to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, and they ask me, like, what is his name? They say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What is the name for God? I am. Tell him, I am has sent me to you. This is one of the most revered names for God, still even in Judaism all the way up into this day. The great I am. We sing worship songs about him. And we know how this all plays out. This great I am goes forth with Moses in power and he delivers that weaponized message and ultimately captive people are set free. This is kind of the cutting away point. This is where we gotta kind of land things and bring it all together too. This is where it gets more personal. This I am name. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but during Jesus' day, the vast majority of people that read the, New Te or the Old Testament, the scriptures, they weren't reading in Hebrew. We know the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, mostly Hebrew. But Hebrew was practically a forgotten language. So the vast majority of the time you read the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, you're actually reading quotations that are coming from a version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Septuagint 
It means the 70 in Greek. They took 70 of their top premier scholars because Hebrew was becoming a forgotten language a few hundred years before the life of Christ. And so they realized, well, Hebrew's becoming forgotten. Greek is the dominant language because the guys like Alexander the Great conquering, you know, the world and taking on certain, he adopted certain Greek influences and he really liked Koinia Greek. So Greek became the lingua franca of the day. It was the language of the people. And so they thought, you know, we need to get our Hebrew text into the Greek. And so the Septuagint is 70 of their top scholars, like strategically, surgically translating from Hebrew to Greek as accurately as they possibly could. And I'd say it's got God's stamp of approval on it. Why? Because when Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, like I said, the majority of the time, he's quoting from the Greek version. So why is that important? Because what does Exodus 3.14 look like in the Greek? What is the name for God in the Greek? And it would look like this. It would sound like this. Ego Ami. That is the name for God. That is the revered name for God that's ascribed to God. Y'all, it's the Ego Ami. And so anyone during that time, when you said Ego Ami, they're thinking, I am Exodus 3.14, Bernie Bush. Why is that important? Well, because Jesus in the New Testament, in John chapter 8, and I'll just have to kind of give you guys the 30,000 foot view at this point, but he's being challenged on his identity. You know, kind of like the, the, the countrymen, right? Oh, who do you say you are? And so they're challenging him. They're claiming pedigree. Oh, we know our DNA. We know our pedigree, where we come from. We got the lineage, our father, Abraham. And he's just like, okay, you guys want to claim pedigree. And they're also kind of trying to, I think, do a little, yeah, we know Joseph. Like, who's your father? They keep asking, who's your father? They're thinking, they, they know Joseph isn't your father, and so, you know, Jesus, they're going on and on about Abraham. And, and so he decides to respond to them. In John chapter 8, verse 57, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Their response, they're like, then the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? They're like, oh, you know, this guy's like 5150, right? Like, he's not even 50 years old and he's saying he's seen Abraham. They're not picking up stones to stone him at this point. Because you can't in Judaism. Remember, they followed a law. And they were, very, uh, they were very specific in terms of like how they follow the law in the Old Testament, the Pharisees, how they would divide things up. They're trying to catch Jesus on something. They're always investigating him, right? Like raiding his you know, place, kind of like they do still to this day, right? They're trying to find something on him. They couldn't get anything on Jesus. And so as they're making these attempts to try and find something on him, they're looking for something they could kill him over, all right? They want that, but they don't have it. Even with this statement, before, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it was glad. That's not enough right there. They think, if anything, he's a little crazy, he hasn't said anything, that's damning. But look at the response then. Then the Jew says, you're not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Verse 58, Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, ego, ah, me, Boom, like that was it right there. What did Jesus just do? Well, look at the following verse. It wasn't lost upon them. Then they took up stones to stone him because they understood he's taking the ego on me, the name for God in Exodus 3.14. And this guy is describing it to himself. He's saying, I am God in a bod right here. The thing is, is that they didn't believe he was God, but they clearly understood he's claiming to be God. And so the accusation there isn't that he's crazy. The accusation is 50, not 5150. It's blasphemy. Capital punishment now. And John chapter 10, it's very clear that this, this is their understanding because 
Again, they pick up stones to stone him. And he says, many good works are performed in your sight. For which of these do you want to stone me? They say, not for a good work, but for you, being a man, make yourself to be God. They understood he claimed to be God. This is a great passage to use at Jehovah Witnesses, by the way. I have a whole nother like, little angle I could go down where I've done this before. And it blows them away because they see how God in Exodus 3.14, that ego on me, Jesus describes that name to himself. They don't believe Jesus is God. And so I've gotten to share that with JWs at the door before. And usually it's like the older one, you know, they got the little protege, then like the older one that's a little bit more far gone. They're like, oh, we gotta go, you know, like, oh, you know, we gotta get out of here. And the last time I did it, I go, well, why don't we schedule a meeting, come back together? And they go, yeah, sure. I go, all right, take down my number. And they go, yeah, okay, go ahead. And I, I read off my number to them. I go, did you get it? They go, we got it. I kind of felt like they didn't. So I go, repeat it back to me so I know you got it. They go, we got your number. <laughs> they didn't take it down. Uh, but this is where it gets more personal and we'll kind of land on this. So remember, there's this sort of dichotomy between good and evil, and there's patriots that stand in the gap. You can see it from the foundation of our nation. There are brave men and women that stood in the gap. They say things like, give me liberty or give me death. It's pended to history as a declaration of independence. We know how this all plays out in Exodus. God would ultimately use his patriot Moses to deliver a declaration of independence. Let my people go. And they went into the land of milk and honey, that Jordan. But remember today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, there is a God of this age that we are up against. He's a tyrannical ruler. And he has those that are in bondage and captivity and slavery. And God has his patriots, as it were, like Moses, to do what? deliver a weaponized message, a declaration of independence. And now we know that this very same burning bush figure, God, Jesus ascribed to himself, this is Jesus. And what does Jesus call you and I to do? Go into the world and make disciples. Go advance the kingdom of God. Set captive people free. Every card-carrying Christian is supposed to do this. Like, let me answer the question in case you think that this is only for certain people in the church that are gifted with this, that is not the case. It's what you could call a virtuous circle in the New Testament. This command that came from Jesus, our commander, the command was to go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe the things I've commanded you. What did he just command them? Go into the world and make disciples. What are they supposed to teach them? What he just commanded them, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe the things I've commanded you. And so there's this virtual, virtuous circle, every card-carrying Christian, if you're a Christian, each of us is supposed to be going into the world, making disciples the same way we were made a disciple. And being a disciple has to do with discipline. You know, we are his apprentices. And so there is no kind of coasting through life Christianity, right? He's supposed to be the commander of the universe. We've been given direct orders. Could you imagine what it would be like in the SEAL teams to literally have millions of dollars like pumped into you, right? In terms of like training and, you know, everything you go through on the shooting ranges and the armory that you have and the weapons, the resources. And then when it finally comes time to go outside that wire, you go, you know, I'm not going to do it. Why not? Well, I might get shot at I'm not going to do it, you know? It could be socially awkward out there, you know? It's like, what would you say about someone like that? Like, that person's not a soldier. They don't deserve to be called a soldier. They are deserters. They're AWOL. In a very similar way, we are all soldiers for Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says so. But if you can't take it from me, you can't take it from Jesus, take it from an atheist, a very familiar one, Penn Gillette. Penn and Teller from Las Vegas. He's one of the magicians, illusionists. Well, Penn... He's, he's an outspoken atheist. He makes videos online speaking out against, you know, the existence of God. And you would think an atheist 
would like you to just keep it to yourself. Privatize it, keep it at home, don't bring it out into the drinking water. Well, that's not what he thinks. He's a pretty logical guy, I guess you could say to some degree. He put out a video online called Gift of a Bible. I'll briefly transcribe just part of it for you. He was astonished that someone actually gave him a little Gideon's New Testament. And so he says, you know, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He's talking about evangelizing. Doesn't respect Christians who don't evangelize. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make things socially awkward. Here's, here's the challenge. He goes like this. How much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I will tackle you. Then he says, and this is more important than that. From the mouth of an atheist, he's saying this, sharing the cross is more important than that. He's like, I don't believe what you guys believe, but man, if you guys believe it, whoa, how much you gotta hate somebody to believe it's true and not share it. We've all been there with people where we think at the counter, I should say something right now. You're standing next to them maybe at the airport or those family members that are difficult to talk to, especially with the season that we got coming up now. We got Christmas, we got uh, Thanksgiving coming up, and there's people that we want to share with, but for some reason, every time it gets brought up, it gets, gets blown up. So how do you defuse that bomb? Well, here's a great one just for the, the holidays coming up, is that you let them know about Pendulette. Just tell him, he's a very familiar figure. You know who Penn Gillette, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he put this video out online and you know, he calls out Christians, you know he's an atheist, but he calls out Christians, how much you gotta hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not share that with them. The person across from you, I've done this like a hundred times at least now. They go, yeah, I guess I could see that. And you go, you know what? And because I don't hate you, because I love you, would you please allow me to share some things with you now? There's, there's like no comeback to that where they go, you judgmental Christian on your pedestal, like, it goes that way sometimes, but this diffuses that bomb. And they'll sit there and they'll hear you out. And so thank you, Pendulette, for that resource that we now have that we can use. Amen? I'm looking at the clock realizing I'm over, so let me just kind of bring it together like this, all right? One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis. You know, in, in the SEAL teams, if we're effective at what we do, what do we do? We sabotage the plans of evil people like suicide bombers. What's a suicide bomber's goal? They wanna take out as many people with them as they possibly can in the process. They're not satisfied with going down by themselves. They wanna take out as many people with them as they can. That's their version of success. But if we're successful in the SEAL teams, we sabotage their plans, right? We preserve life in a very similar way. Please consider this. You all, as the church, as soldiers for Christ, are up against the ultimate suicide bomber. We've read the back of the book. This is global war on terrorism, 1 John chapter five. The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And like a suicide bomber, he's strapped. We've read the back in the book of Revelation. We know he's going down, but he's not content with going down by himself, is he? What does he wanna do? Like any suicide bomber, he wants to take out as many people with him as he possibly can in the process. His version of success is taking out your family, your friends, your coworkers. But like special forces, like SEALs, God has weaponized you. He's given you a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody, not the 50 cal. He's given you the gospel message. It's the greatest weapon we have to do what? To charge the kingdom of darkness with, amen?